1: Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 77 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast, with big-name interview shows every Monday just like this one and short four- or five-minute daily episodes released Tuesday through to Sunday on a show that I call This Day Rocks. If this is your first time listening, then please find Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app, Or player of choice and subscribe directly on there so you don't miss a single episode as i said one comes out every single day and you can only get those episodes on vintage rock pods feed so give it a like or subscribe separately on that channel please well today's show features a rock star who had a gold record when he was just a teenager joined the band who are called the bad boys of rock after a stint in jail and played at the legendary woodstock festival of 1969 one of the blues rock bands who forged the future during the late 60s Los Angeles scene. I'm talking about the brilliant Canned Heat and their drummer since 1967, Fito Della Para. But first, as always, a quick shout-out. I had a small break with family recently in London, which got extended thanks to our return flight being cancelled at the last minute. We didn't get home for a couple of days more, stressful, as you can imagine. There was uh, seven of us, young kids too, and we had to find our own accommodation at 11 o'clock at night and pay for it all as well. So it's been a bit of a bit of a crazy week, to say the least. But I want to say thanks to three different people who reached out during the week, as I think a couple of the This Day Rock shows didn't go out as scheduled, which I apologise for. So a big thanks to Kevin Wallace, Armand Gross, and Mac B from the Ugly American Werewolf podcast. They all messaged me to make sure that everything was okay as I'd missed a couple of daily shows. Thanks for the concern, guys. It really means a lot to me that people do actually notice when shows don't go out. I've said this before, but uh, it can be a bit of a lonely gig, this. Vintage Rockpot is a one-man band. I literally do everything all on my own, from the guest arranging, to the interviewing, to the editing, the social media, the uploading, everything, indeed all by myself. So it is uh, amazing when I get messages and feedback of any type from you. So thank you very much. Also, don't forget to get on the Vintage Rock Pod YouTube channel. It's growing rapidly now, a really nice community growing on there as well. I post clips from the interviews so you can see the legends as well as just hearing them on the podcasts. Plus every single day I put out a fun poll on the subscriptions and community feed on there. If you've not checked that out then just go to your little app on your phone or whatever it is and just press the subscriptions button and you can see all the different people you subscribe to on there and on that feed you'll get every single day you'll get a little fun poll from me on there. Some brilliant things and lots of people getting involved. Some great discussions on there as well. Just head to YouTube, search for Vintage Rock Pod, press the subscribe button on the channel. Again, absolutely free. Press the bell button on there as well so you don't miss anything and you can get involved on YouTube. Right, back to Fito Della Para then. It's another top interview. Fito is a great guest and you can hear how much he loves to tell his stories, talk about his incredible career, keep the memory of canned heat and the, the music and the musicians of the band alive. And boy, does he have some great stories to tell, including signing a deal that meant he pretty much made no money from the band, what it was like to join the Bad Boys of Rock. We go deep on some of the group's big hits and, of course, we hear all about Woodstock. So please enjoy this fantastic chat with Canned Heat legend, Fito Della Para. Well, Fito, thank you very much for joining us here on Vintage Rock Pod. I mean, Canned Heat's legendary group, it's a name that's gone down in history for, for 50 years or so now. But you joined in the band in, in 1967, and at that point, they were labelled as the bad boys of rock after an incident, shall we say, in Colorado. Was this something that um, bothered you in any way, shape or form at the time when you were joining the group?
2: Uh, You know, when I joined the group, I thought it was kind of funny that the guys got busted for marijuana. Of course, marijuana was like a very illegal drug then, and it was a very stupid thing to make it illegal, but finally now it's legal in many places. Uh, It it really did affect me, mainly financially, Mm -hmm. because even if I was not in the band when they got busted, I also lost my royalties together with them. You see, Uh, when I joined the band, I had to sign an agreement that I was joining and I was willing to give away our publishing or my share of the publishing uh, because of that bust. You see, uh, our manager was desperate when the bust happened and he ran back to Los Angeles to talk to Al Bennett, the president of Liberty Records. And he told him, I got these guys in jail, you know, I mean, I have to get them out. I need some money. So Al Bennett tells him, you know, you guys are a a blues band. You are not selling that many records. You have one record out. It's not really that popular. And uh, you already have a bad reputation. You're a bunch of dangerous hippies. And so he says, okay, I'll buy you the publishing of the band for the rest of the life, you know, for forever for $10,000. You know, as I said at the time, we had no hit records. The band was not a famous band, and they were in jail. Mm-hmm. So Skip went ahead and sold the publishing rights of the band to be able to, you know, pay the bond and and get them out. So that affected me financially for the rest of my life. You know, wow. that I came into a band that was already giving away part of the royalties.
1: Wow, that's know. incredible! No, I've heard of bands that have had um, uh, really I terrible. I was not in the band when the boss happened, yeah. <laughs> but you know
2: I had to do it.
1: But it's you perfect, know,
2: and yeah. regardless of that, you see, I didn't join the band to get, to get rich or to become famous.
0: Yeah,
2: I joined the band because I loved the music they were playing, and that's the kind of music I wanted to play too. Yeah, so I was delighted to join this band. Uh, I was an immigrant from Mexico. I was just coming in. And, uh, you know, getting this kind of recognition and being able to be part of a, one of the known bands from Los Angeles that are starting to come up. I was delighted to be there. And I didn't really care about losing all those royalties yeah. and all that. Problems. Yeah.
1: So how did that come about then? How did how did they approach you to join the group?
2: Uh, well, I, 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 uh, you know, I was playing already in Three different bands in the Los Angeles area. Uh, I, I, you know, I got to talk about you know the the the, the part of the mid sixties in Los Angeles was a wonderful era. You, I'm sure you probably heard, heard about it. You you look younger, so you couldn't live <laughs> there. But but you know there were a lot of nightclubs, a lot of uh, let's call it intellectualism. You know there was a lot of uh, progress going on. Uh, uh, great music, great thinking uh good ideas good ideals uh, and, and that was happening all over los angeles there was all these clubs and and all this uh, all this music going on so i was playing in three different bands and, and and i was playing also in a club called the the tomcat club which was basically a rhythm and blues club where it was half half the audience was black half the audience was white uh, and it was like basically on the weekends we had celebrity night and we had some of the greatest rhythm and blues uh, singers come over and play since i was in the house band we were able to and privileged to back all these people and learn from them and get to talk to them and you know people like you know jimmy reed uh, the shirelles the platters uh, troy walker t-bone walker yeah ada james Era actually lived very close to the Tomcat Club. Ah. She lived uh, a few blocks away. This is in a very funky area of Los Angeles called Torrance. The Mexicans call it La Rana. Torrance, California. That's a place where all these uh, refineries for oil are there. It's horrible and it stinks. It stinks of oil and all these chemicals. But that's where the Tomcat Club was. So that's where the managers from Kent, he came to see me play as I was playing with this rhythm and blues band there. And uh, I guess they've heard about me, I don't know how, through the grapevine. They came and they offered me to join Camp Heat. I was still pretty much square, you know. I mean, we in the Tomcat Club, we use suits and ties and, and all that. <laughs> and these guys come already with long beards and long hair. And they come to me and they tell me, Do you realize that there is a a new musical movement going on in San Francisco and here in L.A.? You know, I was into the rhythm and blues thing. I didn't really didn't know what was going on. And uh, I didn't know about Jimi Hendrix or anything like that yet. You see, it was just started. So that's that's where that's where the meeting came. They came to see me at the Tomcat Club. Then then they uh, organized an audition. For me to play with uh, one of the bands I was playing with and Can Heat, yep. this was in another uh, another funny place from that era called the Magic Mushroom, <laughs> and that's where the that's where the famous audition came. I played with my band. I had a band called Blueberry Jam, yep. which uh, was quite good, and uh, we actually played better than Can Heat that night. Uh, the the Can Heat band they had just come out of jail. They were not in the best of shape. And they've been arguing a lot with their drummer, with their drummer, Frank. Yeah. So they were not really, you know, they were actually looking for another drummer. That's why they, they came to the Magic Mushroom. So that's where they saw me. And that night after they saw me, they called me around three o'clock in the morning in my house. <laughs> they come me and said, the boys really like the way you play. If you want to come and have a, an audition and play with them. So the following day, I went to the ranch. They had a little ranch in Canoga Park. And uh, another anecdote of that, of that day is that on my way to the audition, I stopped by a record store and I bought a record by Buddy Guide and Junior Wells. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of those uh, Chicago blues the, from the South Side, from Pepper's Lounge. Yeah. one of the famous live Chicago blues records. So I had that record under my arm when I went and knocked the door of the Kent Heat Ranch, you know, to see, you know, to do the audition. I didn't know these guys were hardcore record collectors and musicologists that they, you know, they knew this music back and forth throughout the years. They had huge collections of records, especially Bob height Bob Hyde and Henry and Alan Wilson. So uh, it was a real funny thing that I knock on the door and Bob opens the door. And later on, he told me, I have seen you play already. I know that you were a good drummer. This is There are many good drummers out there. He says, but the fact that you had that Junior Wells uh, Body Guy record under your arm, the moment you came here, he says, that told me this is going to be the drummer for Canned Heat. Brilliant. It's, you know, such a innocent uh, thing that I did, buying this record on my way to the rehearsal, you know, it kind of got me into the band because... See, they were having problems with the other drummer because he was very much a jazz-oriented drummer. He wanted to play jazz. And the, the Canned Heat was a blues band. I, I was a blues drummer. I wanted to play blues music. So... That's how I can end and, You know, we played that night, that that uh, that afternoon. I mean, we played together. We sounded like we were together for years. I knew all the songs they were doing, and and Larry Taylor and I really locked in good. We played very good together. And then after the audition, the managers pulled me to the corner of the room, and they asked me, "Do you want to join Ken Heat?" And I answered. I was born to play in Kansas. Oh, brilliant! <laughs> so, so they really, they really love that answer, you know, from this, you know, this yes. Mexican kid who just arrived to the U.S. and showing a kind of commitment that you know many musicians don't show in the beginning. Uh, you have to realize musicians, by nature, are mercenaries because of the cruel nature of the music business. So musicians, normally, when you offer a musician a gig, the first thing he's going to ask is, how much am I going to make? <laughs> you know? I didn't do that with canned heat because I knew they were not making any money, you know? And as I said, money and all that stuff was not important at the time. So that's why I answer, I was born to play with canned heat because when I heard them playing that music, that music that I loved, that I that I educated myself about in Mexico and, and came to the U.S. with the desire of playing that music. So I was accomplishing that very early in my life already, and I was very happy to join this bunch of wild guys.
0: That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today.
1: <laughs> wild guys, indeed. a um, Wild time. You mentioned this earlier and it's, it's something I was going to pick up on a bit later, but we'll, we'll, we'll touch on it now. The, uh, the famous Kaleidoscope Club, um, where you guys became almost residents of it. You, I think a couple of guys uh, were involved in leasing the club as well. But the, the likes of Jefferson Airplane, I've spoken to Jorma Kalkinen, uh, Grateful Dead, Buffalo Springfield, Richie Fury's been on the show as well. I mean, these guys all came and played at the club and it was a fantastic melting pot to be. So again, take us back to that time. Take us back to that Take us back to that time in L.A. when it was so famous.
2: As I was telling you, the mid-60s and the late 60s in Los Angeles, you know, the music scene was exploding. There was all kinds of great clubs. The Kaleidoscope Club was bought by our managers. Our managers bought it, and I don't know what kind of deals they made, but they, they had this fantastic club. It was kind of the answer to the Fillmore Club and the Avalon Club in San Francisco. We wanted to have a big club where the whole hippie culture will come and have those bands that you just mentioned, uh, you know, uh, Jefferson airplane, uh, all of them that you, that you mentioned and can't hit, of course. So our managers own the club. So we were kind of the house band there too. And, uh, and we play, uh, we play a few nights there. And, and we also, uh, you know, share the, the the stage with many of the other ones that you just mentioned. And, and eventually, one night, I don't know what happened really with the finances of the club, but one time we came and we showed up to play, and all these dudes with suit and ties and the big bulk in the middle, these uh, three or four mean-looking Latin dudes from, from New York, from back East, not even from L.A., they come to us and say, no, you are not playing your managers didn't pay their debts and now we're taking over the club. So basically the, the club got was taken over by the mob because I believe I don't, I we will have to talk to my manager. They probably borrow money from them or something happened that went wrong. And then I do remember how these mean looking dudes didn't let us play that night, you know? It was eventually the end of the kaleidoscope and the end of the dream. But while it worked, it was fantastic. I think it was open about a year and a half, two years. Even the posters are very well known now. The kaleidoscope posters are as desirable as the Fillmore posters because they are classic. They are beautiful and they are round. They are circled. It's like a a complete circle. So that's what the kaleidoscope was, you know, based on the little kaleidoscope uh, things we used to use in the 60s to look, to look all that, you know, all the the weird uh, psychedelia. That's what it is. So anyway, yeah, that's the story of the kaleidoscope. Great music, great stuff. But I guess they didn't pay their debts and the mob (laughs) took it over. And uh, and it was a scary (laughs) night. That night when we showed up, hey, we're coming to play our show. And they say, no, you're not. No, you're
1: not. (laughs) Scary night indeed. But let's take you back to something that's not so scary. Once you are in the band, along with Bob and Alan and Henry and Larry, it was the core classic lineup of the group, really. Um, In your words, then, what made each of those members of the band so special?
2: Well, especially their talent. I mean, they each were very different and they had very different personalities. And that also created some friction. But I tell you, I've known a lot of musicians all my life. I started playing when I was 13 years old, and I've been in music wow. since I was 13 years old. My first recording contract was with when I was 13 years old with CBS wow. Records in Mexico. I already had recorded several LPs, and I had a gold record already in, in some of the Mexican bands that I played with in the Mexican rock and roll scene, you know, pretty much a teeny bopper thing, teen teenager thing. Until I discovered rhythm and blues. But uh, the thing about this this band members is, as I said, not only they have very special personalities, very sensitive people, especially Alan Wilson, but they also had great talent. I'm. I'm not just bragging about the Canned Heat members. I mean, you all. You all. You have to do is listen to them. I mean, yes. Henry Vestin was a fantastic guitar player. Alan Wilson was a, a genius in the harmonica and also a great guitar player. Bob Haidt was not really uh, an educated singer, but he was. He was a great blues shouter. That's that's the way we used to call it. a blues shouter, like. of course, trying to copy Big Joe Turner, who used to be known as the loudest blues singer in the world. He didn't need a (laughs) microphone. He was a blues shouter. (laughs) So Bob Hyde really loved Big Joe Turner and thus got that kind of singing. And since he was not a trained singer, you know, in reality, as far as as knowledge of music, he had the most knowledge of all of us. But as far as experience on the stage and playing, he had the least amount because mm-hmm. Henry, Larry, and I were pretty much professional musicians already. Larry, I mean, uh, Bob and Alan were mainly intellectuals, record collectors, and musicologists. They were not performers. They, they grabbed us, the, Henry, Larry, and I, because they knew we were performers and we were kind of, you know, make make the band complete. They they tried to play with other guys in the beginning. They even formed what is called a jug band, you know, with a big bottle and acoustic instruments, because they only wanted to play country blues and, and, you know, and do that stuff. But eventually they saw that they were not going to get anywhere doing that, and that's when they decided to hire professional musicians. They like the kind of music they like. And that's when Larry Taylor came in. Henry, they knew already because Henry was a record collector too, you see. Mm-hmm. So Larry Larry and I we were actually just performers. We were professional musicians that like, you know, the music. So that's, that's how the whole marriage came together. You know, we all liked the same music. We liked each other. Everything was okay in the beginning. And then things started to fall apart like many other families and many other bands.
1: Indeed, indeed. Let's touch on the uh, the group's second release, but it was the first breakthrough. I mean, Boogie with Candy, it's really famous now. Big hit here in the UK. It was number five on the album chart. It contained um, the breakthrough single as well on the road again. Went top 20 in the Billboard chart. Went to number eight in the UK. It was top five, top 10 in other places around the world. Uh, on here on the Vintage Rock Pod, we like to hear uh, the stories behind the songs. Now, what do you remember about the, the origins of this track? Obviously, it's based on a, a Floyd Jones song, but what do you remember about choosing the song and adapting it to yourself? Death, yeah, ba- sort
2: of yeah, basically the lyrics are based on Floyd Jones, but even Floyd Jones, as all as he ba- goes back, the lyrics of Under Road Again are basically traditional lyrics of Mississippi music, Mississippi blues. Yeah. So I don't really know if Floyd Jones wrote those lyrics, but he was the first one that recorded it. You see, that's the whole thing. Some of those lyrics are like uh, traditional songs that that sometimes you don't even know who, who actually came out with the original, you see, because they were not recorded. You know, they came from the 30s and the 30s or the 20s. So the idea was, you know, we never expected to have a hit record. It was something that came all, all of a sudden. We recorded that with the idea of of including a tempura sound to add an Indian drone effect. Okay. You know, the drone effect of one chord. We we believe that was kind of hypnotizing. It was a very... popular to use those kind of sounds in, 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 in the sixties, you know, the Beatles were doing it. Many other bands were doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ravi Shankar was very famous at the time, you know? So, so that's what we decided to do. Mix that kind of drone thing with a John Lee Hooker type boogie, because it is kind of a John Lee Hooker influence on the road again, you know, the, the, the type of Johnny Hook. Yes. Yeah. So that's how we did it, and and then it came out. You know, we never expected to become a hit record. All of a sudden, one day, our manager comes to a rehearsal, a skip, and says, "You guys have a hit record in Texas." Some this jockey just started playing playing the, the the record over and over again and became very famous in Dallas, Texas. Then it became famous in Texas, the whole state. And then it became famous all over the U.S. And then it went around the world. Uh, we felt wonderful about it. it. We didn't even know how to handle that, how to handle fame and fortune <laughs> and all that, because we were used to playing funky, you know, 100 people, nightclubs, yeah. blues clubs, you know, blues clubs with billiard tables and, and, and beer clubs and all that. You know I mean? That was the state of the blues in those times. It, the blues was not popular. And that mm-hmm. was part of our mission and our desire to make blues-oriented music popular for white audiences, especially. And that's why we were delighted when it became a big hit in the UK. I mean, that was great. That was our, our door to Europe. As, as you mentioned, it became a big hit in the UK. Then it became a big hit in Germany and in, in all, over, all over the world. So that was was and Heath's introduction to mixing country blues with rock and roll. And that's what we were trying to do and try to educate and, as I said, make this kind of music palatable for the rest of the world.
1: It certainly was. And as you said, a huge hit. I mean, on the back of that kind of success, you you came to Europe as as well, didn't you? You toured for the first time and you appeared on, on UK's famous Top of the Pops. I mean, do you remember much about that?
2: I know and, and and here we are mix you know alternating with all these pop bands that we didn't even like. <laughs> you know what I mean That was not really our thing and you know there were many times where we were booked with, Bands like the 1910 Fruit and Gum Company and, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, bands that were like, I mean, no, I don't mean no disrespect, but they were really totally uh, teeny bopper bands, you know.
1: Yeah.
2: As I said earlier, we were a bunch of dangerous hippies smoking weed and doing all kinds of illegal <laughs> things. And and, uh, and I'm playing music that was definitely a lot harder and a lot deeper than, than you know, this all these famous little tunes for kids, you know, but (laughs) the the promoters didn't know that. And many times they booked us with all these bands. And I mean, uh, in my book, I talk about a a couple of events. We play with uh, Bobby Sherman, for example, and uh, I cannot talk about it here, but you have to read the story in the book (laughs) because that was really funny. I mean, we, as I said, we find ourselves playing gigs with all these Top pop bands—they were not really like us. You know what I mean? Yep. It's not like when we play at the Fillmore or, or at the Avalon Ballroom yes. or, or at the Lovings yeah. in the in the parks. That was with bands like us, but not when we became popular. When we became popular, we were out there put together with all these other popular bands. Most <laughs> of those promoters didn't even know where we stood. They didn't know we were a hardcore blues band or all that. They will just look at the top 10 and say, oh, well, this band that can't hit, okay, put him put him with the show with the other ones, with, you know, with the monkeys and the, the, the uh, you know, the Fruit Ten Company and all those. <laughs> but anyway, it was a lot of fun. And, uh, and, of course, we got to play some great shows.
1: Oh, fantastic stuff. Fantastic. Uh, and here on Vintage Rock Pod, again, we have to touch on more, more of your big hits because, like you said, you toured the UK and you really did make your mark in the UK because you had some huge hits over here um, commercially, probably stronger than, than in the US. But uh, one of the other ones we have to talk about is going up the country, of course. I mean, that became... The biggest hit for the Canty in in the U.S. I mean, what do you remember about that one coming out on the reception? That one. Okay, that?
2: So, so that one, you know, we were in a, we were having a rehearsal, and uh, just Larry and I were sitting there. I don't remember Henry being there, but uh, Alan came in with this piece of paper. You know, Alan was kind of a funky guy. He would write things all over the place and his thoughts in different uh, booklets and stuff. So he comes with this yellow piece of paper, which I have a copy of right here with me. It's the original chart of going up the country. And he starts whistling this flute part. And he says, you know, I got inspired by this guy, Henry Thomas. He's a one-man band from Texas, from the 30s. He did a song called Going Down South that has that little flute part and that little guitar part. So Alan comes and starts going, you know, singing the the flute part. And then he starts going, going up the country, baby, don't you want to go? Going up the country, baby, don't you want to go? And, uh, you know, he starts going. And then Larry and I start backing him a little bit with an eight note beat. All of a sudden, without even finishing the song, before the song was finished, we sort of stopped playing and looked at each other. And Larry says, that's going to be a hit record. I mean, we were not looking for a hit, you know? Of course, our managers already were saying, you already have, you have a hit record already, you know, because of on the road again, right? Now you need to come up with another record. And we already feeling the pressure of the business and the managers and the, the record company. Make another hit record. You guys have to have another hit record. Even if you are not commercial, even if you don't care, you have to have another hit record. So there it was. There is Alan going, going up the country, baby, don't you want to go? And I, I mean, as I said, we just looked at each other and said, you know, this is it. You know, we're just going to play it as simple as possible and it's going to be a hit record. And it was. It became so big also because of the Woodstock Festival that kind of came in at the same time as the record was being released. And then it became the theme. Of the Woodstock Festival is the, when you think of Woodstock, on the great festival, you always think of that song. That song going up the country. Of course, you are going up the country from New York City to the Cascade Mountains. That's going up the country to the Cascade Mountains where the where the Max Yasgers uh, farm is. And, and that's what the idea is. You're going up the country. I say that because many people, including Paul McCartney, were singing it going down the country. In the, the latest <laughs> the latest Beatles uh, documentary, you know, the, the one that just came yeah. out, there is a section where, where they mention Came Heath and, and, and Paul, Paul starts playing the song and he sings it <laughs> going down the country, baby. Baby, don't you want to go going down the country? So, my message is it's not going down the country, it's going up the
1: country. Yes. Come on, Sir Paul McCartney, get it right. And you mentioned Woodstock, we have to talk well, about that I'm, as well. Happy, I mean, I'm happy they even mentioned us. That's great. Of course, of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of Woodstock then, I mean, uh, give us your first impressions when you were choppered in. I mean, what, what did you think when you saw that? Uh, I think Jorn McAlkinen said it was, a, it might have been Cosmo, said it was a, a sea of humanity is what the way he described it. I mean, what were your own first impressions when, when you were in? It was a sea in? of
2: humanity. Uh, uh, you know, I, I originally didn't want to go to Woodstock. I was very tired. Okay. Henry Vestine had just quit the band. The band had suffered its first trauma. We hired Harvey Mandel at a gig in the Fillmore West because Henry quit, and we didn't have a guitar, a lead guitar player to play with. Luckily, Harvey Mandel came from that generation of Chicago musicians, that you know, from Paul Butterfield, yes. etc. You know, Charlie Musselwhite. So, so Harvey, Harvey uh, didn't know our music perfectly, but he knew the style and he knew what to fit in and how to play however so we hired harvey on the spot we didn't have time to rehearsal we flew to the Fillmore east we played a couple of shows there and then we had to play woodstock i was not i was not into it i didn't know what woodstock was and i didn't want to know i just, all i wanted to do was sleep and rest but my manager finally managed to get the keys to my room because I will not open. <laughs> you know? I didn't want to go. I, I, I got to be honest. I didn't know what it was. I was just tired. I didn't want to go. So, so he, he opens the door and he says, turn the radio on. Turn the TV on. He says, this is going to be the biggest gig you ever play. And I'm just barely awake. I said, oh, come on, man. Don't bother me. So finally, he convinces me. I put my T-shirt on, my Levi's. I grab my little bag with a couple of drumsticks. A towel and a couple of joints. That was it. That was my trip to Woodstock. Then wow. we ended up in this White Hills Airport, uh, waiting for a way to get there because you know driving there was impossible. And uh, and we saw a, a little. Uh, we saw an air a, a, a helicopter that set press on it, and these guys, some of your colleagues, right? Some of your journalist colleagues. A couple of younger guys with, uh, with their instruments, with their cameras. In those times, the cameras were a lot bigger, too, and they're recorders. Yes, of course. <laughs> and they are running towards a helicopter, a helicopter. So we go and run after them. We are bigger. <laughs> we are more. And we are angry. And we want to get to Woodstock. So we're not going to let the press take that helicopter. <laughs> I
1: love
2: it. <laughs> Bob Hyde jumps on the helicopter and grabs one of the keys and says, Where are you going? And the kid goes, we're going to report the news. And he goes and pulls the guy out of the helicopter, says, no, 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 we're going to make the news. Great line. That's how we, uh, we jump on that helicopter. We sort of hijack the helicopter from the press. And <laughs> when I saw that sea of humanity, as you said, I was so amazed. I, I actually I talked to myself and I go, and you didn't want to play this gig? This is the biggest gig you're ever going to play and you, you didn't want to do it. So I actually felt very good about being on that helicopter. And then at the same time, my manager, Skip, grabs his camera. He had one of those Pentax cameras, you know, the, from yeah. the past. Everything is from the past. So he pulls, pulls his hand out of the window of the helicopter and starts shooting all these pictures. So oh, wow. eventually, one of his shots... Became very famous and is the shot that is in the inside of the Ravi Shankar Woodstock album. Wow. So if you see that that famous shot of the whole
1: yeah, of course
2: the whole uh, audience there, the whole half a million people or whatever that was taken by Skip Taylor from our helicopter.
1: Phenomenal stuff, phenomenal stuff. And what do you remember about um, actually performing on the day then, uh, being there on the stage in front of that Sea of Humanity? What do you remember about that?
2: Well, one of the things that happened that was really good is that at the same time as we were arriving with a helicopter around 4, 4 4.30 p.m., our roadies also showed up with the equipment. It was amazing. They left the night before at around 1 in the morning and they drove more than 12 hours, pushing cars out of the road, asking the fans to help them because many cars were parked there in between. So I don't know how they did it, but you know, normally that drive will take a, a couple of hours. But not that day in Woodstock, that day <laughs> it took 12 hours. So it was amazing that at the same time as we are arriving, our roadies are arriving with a truck. As I said, those poor guys—they wore their asses off. Yeah, they were up all night. They probably took benzodrin or God knows what, <laughs> and uh, and they made it. They made it. They made it through with all our equipment. It was a big truck with all the equipment, and I, I always thought that you know how the roadies never get the recognition they deserve. Of course, I call the roadies of rock and roll the infantry of rock and roll. You yeah. know, and I you know, always the arrogant musicians are always with their trip and my music and this and that. And how easy is for us to forget the gonga dean of rock and roll? So it's the same thing with the roadies. I see the roadies as these guys. They're always work their asses off. They try everything. They make the show happen. Without them, yes. we will not be not there. Sure. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, some of us maybe with an acoustic guitar, yes. When you're talking about drums and equipment and a truck and all this. So as I said, I felt very proud and, and very grateful to our roadies, our infantry of rock and roll that night that they showed up with the equipment after 12 hours of driving. And, uh, and of course, we were one of the few bands that had all the equipment there. Yes. <laughs> Many of the other bands had to borrow, had to change, you know, it was very chaotic, you know. I mean yeah. it, it was as good as organized as possible, but it was still very, very chaotic. So we, we managed to have all our equipment there. And uh and I remember, you know, it was an excellent time to go on. My manager always believed that. Since they saw that we were there and our equipment was there, chip on the uh the, the stage manager of the, of the, of the festival uh, comes to us and says, are you guys ready to go on? And Skip says, yes, let's go on. And, it was, and he always said, look, he says, the sun is setting. He says, this is the best time to go on when you are playing a live festival, when the yep. sun starts to set. Yep. And he was right. He was right. We play a great set. We have a, a great ovation. I believe the biggest ovation I don't mean to brag or whatever, but you can hear it on the record at the end of the Woodstock boogie. Man, we got them going. I mean, (laughs) everybody was just exploding. You know, it it was a wonderful experience to hear that ovation and that uh, that recognition. The Canth Heat was the perfect band for that time and that festival.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Indeed. I mean, a phenomenal festival, a phenomenal time. I mean, can't he, it continued on for, for many years afterwards and you, you still performed and, and even released music, didn't you, into the 2000s as well? I mean, are you still loving life? You're still on the road? You're still playing gigs, that sort of thing?
2: Yes, we are. It's amazing. You know, before the, the virus, the COVID virus came in in 2019, we had one of our best years ever. Oh. Of course, we're, we're old, you know, I'm already in my 70s and all that. And, and, and you know, uh, touring is, is very difficult, especially when you get older. Not the performance. I, love, I still love playing the music. Yep. But the touring, the touring is very hard. You know, the, the, the dealing with the airplanes and hotels yep. and lack of sleep and tiredness, jet lag, all these other problems that happen, you know. But as I always say, the music is for free what we charge for is to get there Brilliant. because we love to play the music we love the communion with the people and we we still do even in our 70s uh, sitting on the stage that's probably the best time of our lives yep. that's not what we charge for <laughs> you know <laughs> i don't want to charge for playing music i'll play music for free and I have to charge for the inconvenience of leaving <laughs> your home and your life, and and driving, and you know eating the strange foods, and staying in hotels, and all that. But anyway, as I was talking about, in 2019 we were celebrating the 50th anniversary of Woodstock too. Yeah. And and it was a wonderful year before COVID came in. And uh, so in 2019, I almost I almost decided not to continue anymore because we were exhausted. Mm -hmm. I mean, we play. We went to Europe. We went to Australia. We went to Mexico. We went to Canada and we played all over the U.S. All these little Woodstock festivals they did. So 2019 was a great year for us. But I was exhausted. Absolutely tired of, you know, traveling for over 50 years. Fifty-three years of traveling on the road—that's that's that's a long time. However, we so we took a break for a two and a half years because of the COVID thing that came in, and we didn't travel, we didn't play, and uh, you know, I just sat at home and tried to stay healthy and watch TV. You know, (laughs) (laughs) but now now things got better. You know, we got our vaccines and all that, and now we started to work again, and we had a a very good year this. 2022 was a very active year and uh we've done you know we play a cruise we did a tour a couple of tours back east we haven't gone to europe yet to england but possibly we'll do it next year Mm. we are still going to work and play live shows we have a really good band right now and we're very happy together and playing playing good after taking a two and a half year break but we're not going to be doing long tours or exhausting things. I mean, we, we're just doing what we can do physically yes. without, without getting totally exhausted. Yeah. But uh, we're still around. We still love music and we still love performing.
1: And stuff.
2: We may be making a new record soon.
1: Ah. With
2: the last Can't oh. Hit record. We have about 40 of them out. And uh, and we've been thinking and having uh, we have a couple of offers to start thinking of a new record.
1: Oh wow! So you're in the early stages of thinking of songs and that sort of thing now.
2: Uh, well, we're we're uh, starting to think about it. One of the ideas I had was we want to make a new version of Amfer and Inani. Ah yes, and call it methamphetamine, Annie. <laughs> <laughs> Because it looks like they, they, they didn't get the message with our original <laughs> amphetamine, Annie. We told you the speed kills <laughs> and people are still dying of speed. A spill overdoses and the methamphetamine thing is just terrible. So we may do a new version of Amphetamine Annie and call it Methamphetamine <laughs> That's one of the things that we may do. I don't know. We're still thinking about it.
1: Excellent stuff. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Fito. I love hearing your stories and uh, best of luck with everything in the future. I look forward to, to maybe seeing you in the UK if you get over here next year and uh, we look forward to possibly some new so. music you know, too.
2: I know, yes. And I, we're really looking forward and we really, you know, I don't want to die before playing Glastonbury,
1: ah, well, there I we really
2: go. want to play Glastonbury. We've played most of the important uh, UK festivals, and we play in in Scotland too. I mean, the last one of the latest uh, blues festivals in Scotland, which I remember well. I love playing in your area. It was wonderful. The the food, the people, the environment. I mean, I love playing in Scotland too. I don't know if we'll ever get there again. But I'm, it's always in my heart and in my memories to play in Scotland and in Glamorgan and in, in Wales. All the areas of the UK is, is fantastic. But maybe Glastonbury next year. I hope there so. See, what happens is that because of the COVID and all that, all these things happen. I know we were invited this year to play Glastonbury. Something happened. Our agent in Europe messed up and didn't communicate it with us. Oh, no and way. then the offer went away. So I really want to come back, come back to England and play Glastonbury or or some others. We'll see what happens next year.
1: Indeed, indeed. Well, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, Fito. Best of luck for everything and uh, take care. Look after yourself.
2: Thank you. You guys too. And don't forget to boogie.
1: The wonderful Fito Della Para there. Some great stories, didn't I tell you? Now, what a guest. If you love these classic rock stories, then make sure to subscribe to Vintage Rock Pod on the podcast app you're using right now and on the YouTube channel as well so you get much more just like that one. But we're going to move on to the top fives today then. And this is where I give you my favourite top five songs from the band or artist of the day so you can buckle up for my top five canned heat songs. First, though, your thoughts on my top five Hanoi rock songs from a couple of weeks ago. And to be honest, it just turned into a bit of a Hanoi Rocks love-in. Make sure you've listened to episode 75, by the way. Michael Munro is on it, the lead singer from the band. One of the very top-of-the-pile interviews for sure. I'm still getting messages from people enjoying that one. So a few quick shout-outs. Marty Erz commented on my selections. He said it was a respectable list, thank you, uh, given it's just top five. Uh, Simon Shayette says there isn't a bad song from the band. He just did a seven-hour motorway journey and had all the studio albums on and didn't skip a single song song. Charlie Noventa, Sisu Nikolic and Pisto Petri basically said the same thing. They love all the songs. Right, let's see how well this week's selections go down then. Remember, this is my personal list. It's highly subjective and I don't expect you to agree with all of them. So here you go. My top five favourite songs from Canned Heat. At five is a song from the Hallelujah album in 1969. It's got an infectious groove to it. Love it. Number five is Time Was. Time was when we got along. Number four is a drug focused song. No surprises given the psychedelic period of the late 60s in LA, but it's about the dangers of doing hard drugs. From the Boogie with Canned Heat album, at four is Amphetamine Annie. Number three comes from the Living Blues album from 1968. It's the group's biggest hit in America and one of their signature songs, but it's only three on my list. I'm talking about Going Up the Country. Oh,
2: not the country baby,
1: don't you go? At two is another song from the Boogie with Canned Heat album. It was their breakthrough hit, especially here in the UK when it went top ten. My number two is On the Road Again.
2: Well, I saw it, had a gun, but I'm-
1: And at my top spot is the band's biggest hit in the UK, a massive hit here, in fact, from the album Future Blues in 1970. My favourite canned heat song and number one on the list is Let's Work Together. there you go my top five songs from canned heat as always i'd love to hear your thoughts on my list please let me know what your five would be where do you think i got it right tell me what i got wrong i think i know what you're gonna say uh, message me on the social media platforms or you can email me vintagerockpod at gmail.com dead easy well that's it for this week's big interview show then thanks again for listening make sure you subscribe to vintage rock pod on your podcast app and on youtube i'll be back tomorrow with another this day rocks So remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock, just tell them, my music is better than yours. Take care.
3: It's NFL Draft Season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football